Okay, everyone. Good morning. Grab your seats. If you have a Bible, please could you turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. We're going to start there. If you haven't met me, my name is Stuart. I'm the leader of the church here. I want to offer you a very warm welcome. What we're going to be doing today is we're going to be continuing our series in um, the Bible of the Ten Commandments, which appear in that chapter you're just looking up now, Exodus chapter 20, right near the front end of your Bible. The Ten Commandments as a whole in our English translation are about 300-ish words, yet despite their small size, they have contributed massively to Western culture and society and foundation of law and government and how we kind of live our lives. Yet despite that, many people could not name all ten if they were pinned down. Some Christians would struggle to name all ten. Yet God chose to give these to his people um, when they'd first come out of Egypt as a way to conduct their lives. And go back a hundred years, these Ten Commandments were used by the church to train Christians, to train new believers, along with the Lord's Prayer and the Apostles' Creed. They were kind of foundational teachings. So we as a church are going through them just to remind ourselves of them and the implications and application of them. Now, just a quick recap. The law, which is... um, You find kind of in the first five books of the Bible, many, they're often collectively known as the law. Um, This covers a whole range of topics. The law itself in our Bible can be broken down into three areas. We have the ceremonial law, we have the civil law, and we have the moral law. The ceremonial law we find is all the stuff to do with sacrifices and when you have the sacrifices and what you sacrifice and how often and the tabernacle and the temple. Then there was a civil law of how the nation of Israel, the people of God, were to be governed um, back then, and then there was the moral law and how we are to live. And what we found is that this law had a purpose. Its purpose was to show um, us how to live. This is how you should be living. This is how you shouldn't be living for the people of God. It also restrains sin because you know if there's a law and if there's a penalty for breaking that law, you're less likely to break the law. We know that nowadays. We don't break the speed limit because we don't want to get points on our license and have a fine. But also the law, very importantly, shows us we need a saviour. Because we suddenly realise when you look at God's law, you realise you cannot keep it. No matter how hard you try. And we've found that looking through the Ten Commandments. So we need a saviour. And thankfully for us, the law as a whole was fulfilled in, uh, perfectly through Jesus Christ. Jesus came and he was the ultimate sacrifice. The, the lamb of God that took away the sin of the, ro- the world. That's why we don't need any more sacrifices. That's why we don't kill anything. Sacrifice lambs or or other animals to God because Jesus was the sacrifice and there's no more so we don't have to follow the ceremonial law. The people of God do not exist as a distinct nation now as they did back then. They now exist in all nations and all peoples and all tribes and so we follow the law of the nation that we are a part of. We're citizens of this nation, this kingdom so we follow its laws as best we can. And so we don't need to follow the civil law, but the moral law, which the Ten Commandments feel, how, how we live our lives is still binding on us as Christians. That's why we are looking at it today. And the law was given to the people of God as they've come out of slavery in Egypt. Read the book of Exodus, and you have the famous bit, Moses, ten plagues, etc. Let my people go, Pharaoh saying no, da da da, part the Red Sea, out they come. And they're now God's free people. They have been set free by a merciful, gracious God. And into that context, God speaks and gives them these Ten Commandments. It's why we've called the series Free to Live, because the people have already been set free. They've already been 
taken out of slavery and in that context says, God says, you're my people, I love you, I'm for you, I've redeemed you, now live like this. And we as Christians find ourselves in the same boat. We have been set free. We have no longer slaves to sin, the Bible says. And into that contest, we are to live a certain way. And the Ten Commandments still apply to us in that contest. So, so far, what we've looked at, we've looked at the, what we call the first table of the law, the first four commandments, which are vertical in nature. They point us towards God. We've seen the first commandment about we should have no other God. The people of God at the time had come out of Egypt. Well, they had many gods to everything. And God says, no, 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 you have one God and it is me. We've seen the second commandment, which you worship the right God the right way. You don't do things that the other gods would have you do. You worship me. And then we've seen the third commandment about honoring God's name and the fourth commandment about keeping his day holy where we come together as a people of God and we worship him and we look to him. So that was the first table of the law. We're now into the second table of the law, which are the final six commandments. We've done number five last week, which is about honoring our parents um, and honoring authority generally. It begins at home. Always begins at home as a child, you honour your parents in authority, but that has a wider application as we grow up, that we honour the authority over us, whether it be government or our workplace or even in the church context. And today we are on to the sixth, and, uh, sixth commandment. So, let's see, found it in your Bible, number verse 13, can we put it up? And I will read it to you. It's not long, I know it from memory this one. So you put it up, is that there, Joel? You got it? It's not on the present, it should be. Fly two. Okay, I will read it to you. It says, you shall not murder. That's it. That's not a long verse. And that's what we're going to be looking at today, the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. Now, when we get into this, you will see we're going to come up against some incredibly complex and incredibly painful issues. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at some of them. It's going to be a starting point. We can't cover everything. Um, but please bear with me as we go through. So we're going to do the what, the why, and the how of this commandment. The what of this commandment. It is one of the shortest, shortest commandments of all the sets. Some of them we've read have been quite long and quite detailed. This one is incredibly short and incredibly simple in essence. It actually only consists of two words in the Hebrew. I look this up. It's two words. The first word is lo, L-O, which basically means not or no. And then the second word is, I think it's pronounced ratsack, which basically means kill. So effectively it says no kill. That's the commandment, or not kill. Um, Now you'll find some translations. My one that I read out to you says you shall not murder. Some translations say you shall not kill. Why is the difference? Well, the problem is is in our English language isn't as nuanced as the Hebrew it was written in. And that is that uh, in the Hebrew, there are eight different words for killing, I'm told. And so when we say you shall not kill, it's, it's technically right, but it can be imprecise. It can be a bit general. So this word, ratsak, is not used for military killing, i.e. two soldiers fighting on opposing sides locked in mortal combat. If one kills the other, this word isn't used. It's not used for legal killing, um, capital punishment, sort of state-sanctioned Someone has done something horrific and they kill them. That's not used. It's also not used for the hunting or killing of animals. If you go out, you hunt the animal, you kill it, you take it home, you eat it. That's not used for that. So what is this word referring to? It is referring to the premeditated taking of an innocent life, the deliberate killing of a personal 
enemy. Our closest English word to that is murder, which is why the, you shall not murder, I think, is a slightly better translation than you shall not kill. An example of this, you look in 1 Kings 21, where you have the incident with Naboth. Naboth was a godly man, loved the Lord, he owned a vineyard. The king at the time was definitely not godly, his name was Ahab. Oh, yeah, Ahaz, sorry. And he had a wife, Jezebel, and they wanted the vineyard. And Ahaz was lusting after the vineyard, coveting after the vineyard, and his wife said, well, let's just get rid of Naboth. So they put a plan together, they got some people to falsely accuse him, he was taken before the council, and in the end they had him killed. And so he could, Ahaz could then get the vineyard. That is murder. That is premeditated killing. That is exactly what this commandment is forbidding. And so that's one thing. That being said, this word is also used for other kinds of wrongful death. One way we would describe it, we would talk manslaughter, which is slightly different to murder, where someone dies, but actually there is not the premeditated intent. And in our English law, we have voluntary manslaughter, uh, and involuntary manslaughter. Voluntary is more like a crime of passion when someone is provoked and they react and someone dies. And then involuntary is without intent, some kind of accidental, accidental negligence and someone dies of that. This word is used for that as well. So it's actually slightly broader than murder as well. And there are specifics in the law, if you read the law, there are specifics that actually cover this kind of manslaughter. There's, an, there's some fascinating ones. There's one in Deuteronomy 22.8 where it says, when you build a new house... You shall make a parapet for your roof that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. Well, what's that about? Well, the reason is they had, usually had one single-story houses and it got incredibly hot at night so people would go up there and sleep on the roof where it was cooler. And basically they're saying if you don't put a wall around the top of your house, when people go up there at night to sleep on it and they fall off and crash on the floor and die, you're responsible because there's no street lights, nothing like that. It could be incredibly pitch dark outside. And so actually you've got to prevent yourself from hurting someone negligently through your negligence. Later it says, Exodus 21, it says, When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten. But the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned about it but has not kept it, And if it kills a man or woman, that ox will be stoned and the owner also shall be put to death. So there's negligence. You've got an animal that is violent and will attack people and you were warned and you didn't do anything about it. If you're in that thing, you are guilty of breaking the command, the Bible says. But there's also provisions in there. We looked at this and we did a study on Joshua. We looked at the city of refuge. People who are in that situation could flee to the city of refuge who are guilty of manslaughter so it could be worked out what actually happened and judgment could be done rightly in those situations. So to sum up, the sixth commandment is forbidding the unjust taking of a legal life which includes murder in cold blood but also both voluntary and involuntary manslaughter. I read one commentator who said probably the best translation is you shall not kill unlawfully because that kind of covers all the bases but usually translations go for one word so it's either kill or murder but it has a broader application of that. So what does this commandment not prohibit? It, pro- it does not prohibit, sorry my notes are now in the wrong order. What doesn't it? Oh, yeah, there you go. It does not prohibit uh, killing in self-defence. There's actually a bit in Exodus 22 where it talks about a thief breaking into the house at night and saying, actually, if the thief comes into your house at night, it knows two things. One, it knows people are there because everyone's at home at night. No one's out. It's dark. All in home at night. And if it comes and if the thief tries to break in and steal, and there is a scuffle and the thief dies, you are not guilty. 
you're defending yourself. But it says if the thief comes in during the day, it's assuming people are out working, doing their things in the field. And if the thief dies there, you attack it and kill it. Actually, you are guilty because actually you haven't, you can see what's going on. People aren't meant to be there. The thief can then leave realizing people are there. And so actually there's a qualification of that. But actually it doesn't directly cover killing in self-defense. It doesn't cover capital punishment. Genesis 9.6 makes clear. It says actually when one man shed blood or one person sheds blood, their blood will be shed. It makes it very clear. In Exodus 21, it talks about the eye for the eye. Tooth for tooth. It's basically, that means the punishment must fit the crime. And what it's saying is actually if you take a life, there is the ultimate punishment of your life being taken by judgment of the law as a result. And there are many other places where capital punishment in the, New, uh, the Old Testament comes about. And also in, the, in war, in fighting, in nations fighting each other. It says in Romans 13 that the state wields the sword to protect its citizens. So if an aggressor nation comes and attacks, the onus is on the nation to defend its citizen with its standing army and protect them, not to go out and conquer, but actually to be a protection for its citizens. And we find, particularly throughout the New Testament, when people meet Jesus, John the Baptist, others meet soldiers, they never tell them to leave their role in the army. John the Baptist was particularly asked about this and says, what do, you, what do you say to the soldiers who need to repent of their sin, as we all do? And he says, soldiers, who also asked him, said, what shall we do? And he said to them, don't extort money or by threats or false accusation, don't intimidate people and be content with your wages. He didn't say leave and stop doing your job. So let's look at the next section, the Why? Why is this commandment in there? Why has God put it down? Because if you look through history, most societies are not happy about murder. They don't let you do it. Regardless of their kind of ideology, murder generally is considered a bad thing. If we actually go to the context of the Ten Commandments, who was leading the people of Israel at the time? Moses. Moses had to flee Egypt and spent 40 years in the wilderness. Why? Because he murdered someone. So even back then, ancient Egypt, they weren't happy about murder. So he had done it and they worshipped all these false gods. Da, da, da. Moses had done it and so he did it. He scarpered because he didn't want to have to deal with the consequences of that. And it says in the Bible, why do we not kill one another? Why do we not murder? Genesis 1.26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. After our likeness. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. There is something about humans that is different from the rest of the created order. We have God's image. We bear God's image in some way. There is something about us from when God created the heavens and earth that marks us different. And that is that we are in the image of God. And if we go back to that section in Genesis 9, 6 that I've mentioned that says, whoever sheds the blood of man by his blood shall be shed. Why? Because it says, for God made man in his own image. The reason you don't unlawfully kill someone is because they bear the image of God. There is something about human life that is incredibly precious because it bears God's stamp and this is for all ages and all nations and all ethnicities and all backgrounds and all levels of health everyone bears the image of God and should be honored accordingly the very fact this makes us each supremely valuable supremely valuable to God that we have his image and so to take that image 
is to rob God of his glory. To rob God of something about his greatness that he would put that on us and that we would bear that and we would wear that. And so we've seen in the previous commandments, sometimes they're stated positively, sometimes they're stated negatively, but whichever way they are, there's always a flip side. And this is a negatively stated commandment. You shall not, it says. The previous one we did last week was honor. That was a positively stated one. Honor your mother and your father. And so what's the flip side of this? The flip side is you shall preserve life. You shall, you shall not murder, you shall not kill unlawfully, you shall preserve life. For God's people, the priority is that as much as possible, as much as it depends on us, we are to preserve life. Jesus summed it up when he, said, when he was challenged, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the first four commandments. The second, the next six, he said what? He said, love your neighbor as yourself. If you're loving your neighbor, those who are around you, you are seeking their good. You are seeking their welfare. You are seeking to be a positive influence on them. You're seeking to build them up, make them more. Anything to cause them to flourish and grow is a good thing. And so if you're loving them, you're preserving their life, and you're trying not to kill them as much as it depends upon you. And this is summed up beautifully in the, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan, Luke 10 where Jesus tells a story and there's the man he's going from Jerusalem to Jericho and he is set upon by bandits and robbers and I read this the other day and in my translation it said they left him half dead. So they had done something nasty whether they'd stabbed him, whether they'd beaten him, we don't know but he was left half dead and he was out in the middle of nowhere and this is a, a time where they didn't have emergency service, police service or ambulance or anyone you could phone, no communication. He was just going to lie there and die. He had no help, he was hopeless. And it says the priests came along, who were the kind of the, the, the ones who ministered at the temple. They were the super godly ones, the pastors and the church leaders. And what did he do? He ignored him. <laughs> I'm not going to deal with that. And it says the Levite came along, who were from the tribe of Levi. They were the ones, they were the teachers of God's law. They're the ones who knew it and kept it. That was their inheritance. Remember from Joshua? They didn't get any land inheritance. Their inheritance was God. So they, they ministered at the temple and they, they functioned and all that. And what did they do? They walked past. And then you get the Samaritan, who was the hated enemy, the racial half-breed, the ones they thought, we don't want anything to do with these guys. They're horrible. And what does the Samaritan do? The Samaritan seeks to save the man. He saves his life, in essence, because he takes him. He binds up his wounds. He takes him to the inn, which would be the nearest equivalent to a hospital, Pays the innkeeper, look after him. Effectively serving, care for him. You're, the kind of, you're going to stand in for the doctor or the nurse or whatever. Look after this guy. Feed him, bind his wounds, make sure he's okay. He sought to preserve life. And that is our kind of onus as believers here. Then this begs a question. Why in the Bible do we read about people dying? We read about wars. We read about capital punishment. Well, The reasoning behind this is the preservation of life. When people are executed for breaking laws, committing capital crimes, the idea is actually their life is taken because they have done something so heinous in taking another life, but then actually we're trying to stop them doing it again. And so by taking your life, you get the actually, you don't get to do that again to anybody else. So there is the preservation of a life, even in the fighting of wars. An aggressor comes to destroy, to take over, actually an army is to defend, to defend its people to preserve their life and to keep things the way God would have them in peace and prosperity. Last section, how. How does this work out for us in our culture today? 
I don't know if you've sat and thought about this, but I did a little bit of reading, looked around, and the general consensus I could find is that we live today in one of the most violent cultures that has ever existed. We are exposed to murder and killing on an unprecedented scale in history. How? Number one, we have 24-hour news cycle that covers everything. We can log on any time, any day, read news from any part of the world. So we see and hear about horrific crimes every day. Everywhere we go, we hear about stories of violence committed against all kinds of people, whether it's national in terms of wars being fought, when it's more personal in terms of um, murder and killing and just uh, the, the violence against people, whether it's usually against the, the poor and marginalized in trafficking of all kinds. It's just there in front of us. We are seeing it all the time in our TVs and movies. They have not only become more numerous... They have become more graphic in both physical and sexual violence. We just see it more and more. And more and more, the trend is to become more real in its portrayal. I don't know if you've ever gone back and watched some of the old movies that you watched when you were growing up. I'm old enough to do that. And I've watched old action movies and they suddenly seem very tame by comparison. And they were kind of 18s back then. And now they're coming out with more and more um, graphic violence. And our video games as well, which are, is a massive multi-billion dollar industry. If you go and look at the top selling video games, with the exclusion of probably FIFA, which is football, they all are about violence and killing. War games or you know, those kind of things. It's just there. And I read a comment from a military um, psychologist who was saying that what our culture is doing now, to, particularly to the young who, are in, who spend much of the time involved in these things, playing video games, watching TV, movies, is what they do to soldiers to train them to kill. This is one of the problems when you get guys coming for the army or whatever, you have to train them in the mindsets to fight the enemy, which involves psychological training and physical training and weapons training. He says what's happening now in culture is all, what we're doing is we're training our young men and women to do that. Actually, what we do in the army is what's happening in culture. They're, getting, they're training them for us before they come in. I read some statistics. By the time the average child is 18 years old, they will have witnessed 200,000 acts of violence and 16,000 murders. In 2001, two-thirds of Hollywood films were R-rated. We'd call that 18, but that's top rating. Most of the top-selling video games, 89%, contain violent content almost half of which was serious in nature. The level of violence during Saturday morning cartoons is higher than the level of violence during prime time. And 75% of violent scenes on television feature no immediate punishment or condemnation of violence. So he's kind of training people that violence is there and it's okay. Now I just want to just touch on three areas about how it works out in our culture that are particularly sensitive but we have to address them. And that is how we treat life. And we've got these issues at the beginning of life, middle life, and the end of life. The beginning of life, abortion. This is an incredibly painful and emotive subject. And given a room this size with these people, there will be people in the room who have either had an abortion or they've had to walk through that with someone. So I don't want to say this insensitively. I'm aware of that. But that that being that, we have to address it. Psalm 139 says... 
For you were form, I formed your inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Life begins at conception. That's when it starts. That's when it happens. And it, but it is also the most vulnerable time in our life, in anybody's life. The most dangerous place a child can be in this world right now is in the womb of their mother. And throughout church history, the church has opposed this. The Didache, an ancient first century uh, church teaching, stated very clearly, do not murder a child by abortion or kill a newborn infant. And that was nearly 2,000 years ago they were saying that. Because all life is made in the image of God, we are to seek to preserve life from its very beginnings. Since the approval of abortion in the United Kingdom in 1967 to 2014, 8,745,508 abortions have been performed. In 2018, the total abortions in England and Wales were 205,295. In that year, the abortion rate was highest those who were 21 and 81% of them were single next one suicide the middle of life if you have suffered suicide in your family or in among your friends I am truly sorry it is an utterly horrific and painful thing to endure but the reality is for someone to take their own life is to go against everything that God has said and to go against everything God has made in making us in the image of God it is in essence self-murder yet for someone to get to that place where they think that that is their only recourse they must be in incredible pain and incredible suffering that many of us probably cannot grasp the depths to it that an individual will have to go to to get that in the Bible there are multiple examples of people taking their own lives none of them are in a good context all of them are in the context of shame and defeat and nothing good comes out of that we see Abimelech and Judges and Saul and Samuel and Zimri and Kings Ahithophel and two Samuel and Judas in the Gospel of Matthew all those ones nothing good comes out of it it might feel like a way out but it is not what God intended in the UK There were 6,859 suicides in 2018, and it rose that year by 11.8%. Men are three times as likely to die by suicide than women. The highest rate is among men aged 45 to 49. That being said, the rate of deaths among the under 25 increased by 23% last year. There's a generation of men particularly who are taking their own lives. Last one, uh, euthanasia or assisted suicide, which is at the end of life. A growing issue in our society is that um, we want to prevent suicide among the young, yet it seems at the end of life we want to encourage it. Again, this is another difficult subject when dealing with relatives, friends, loved ones who are kind of struggling with difficult conditions, illnesses, And I just want to be clear when talking about this, we're not talking about the termination of treatment, which can happen if someone has a terminal illness and they're getting towards the end. Treatment can be withheld, which just hastens it. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the termination of life, deliberately, willfully. Something that we do not have the right to do. This currently is still illegal in the UK, as far as I'm aware. I've checked on that. But in 2001, Nether the Netherlands 
was the first country to allow assisted suicide. And since 2001, apparently now, more requests are coming from family members than from patients. To reflect on that, during the Nazi occupation during World War II of the Netherlands, the doctors refused to let the elderly or terminally ill die at risk of their own life. Yet, one commentator noticed that it took one generation to change a war crime to an act of compassion. It's something that is going to come up more and more in our society. And these areas are huge issues. But we, we need to be aware of what the Bible says and stand for that and work it out. And we might, we might be sitting there thinking, okay, there's some big issues there of this commandment, abortion, uh, suicide, uh, euthanasia. You might actually be thinking, well, actually, they're big and they're huge, but actually I don't have any direct kind of connection with them. I'm, maybe I'm... You know, they're, they're not something that's come across my radar, which is a privileged place to be, but that's not something that kind of I'm connected with. And you might think, well, actually, when it comes to this commandment, I'm murder-free. Well, let's see what Jesus said about this commandment to make it personal to all of us right now. Jesus said in Matthew 5, he says, You have heard it said of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that anyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the fires of hell. Jesus takes this commandment and moves from something that is purely outward in acts that we do to make it something internal that we are all guilty of. According to Jesus, if we speak or think angry and violent thoughts towards someone, we are just as guilty of breaking this commandment. If we think angry and violent thoughts to members of our family, has anyone ever done that? Yeah, me neither. (laughs) What about work colleagues and bosses? Have you ever had those moments when you think those higher up do not know their bottom from their elbow and you kind of have thoughts about how they've treated you? What about even in the church? You can't have possibly thought something negative about a fellow member of the church. Everyone's going to look straight ahead now like this and not look around because they're not looking at that person. How do we feel now? If you've ever had angry, aggressive thoughts towards someone, have you ever played out scenarios in your head when someone gets their comeuppance in your mind, when they are taken down a peg or two, When something happens and they are exposed and humiliated before their peers, where you've said things in your head that cut them deeply and think, ah, if I just gave them a piece of my mind, everything would be okay. Have you ever told lies about someone, misrepresented them, assassinated their character or reputation? Suddenly, we are all guilty. We are all serial killers in that sense. So... Last thing, let's apply this to our life. How are we going to respond to this today? Well, first thing we need to do is we need to make a commitment to preserve life. To preserve life, that needs to be our focus, our direction in all areas where we walk. And we can take hope because three of the most important people in the Bible outside our Lord Jesus, Moses, leader of the people of Israel, bringer of the law, the great prophet, David, king of Israel, the greatest king of Israel, defeated alive, man after God, 
heart. And the Apostle Paul, who wrote much of our New Testament, brought the gospel to the Gentiles. Because of him, we are now Christians. Those three men all have something in common. What is that? They are all guilty of murder. (laughs) That means there's hope for us. That means that we can find forgiveness in God. That means we can find a hope and a purpose in him, despite their sin, despite what they did and the consequences of it, they found trust and hope in Jesus and forgiveness in him. And the good news for us is that we can all find forgiveness in God, whatever our guilt is in breaking this commandment. We know that God came to earth as a man, Jesus. He lived a perfect life on the earth. He taught his followers. He then was betrayed and he died on a cross in our place for our sin. He then was then laid in the tomb and he rose bodily from death, defeating death, breaking its power. He ascended into heaven, sent the Holy Spirit on his people. The church was formed and he now rules and reigns victoriously and one day will return to judge the living and the dead. And because of him, because of that, we can know forgiveness and freedom. We've sang about it in the songs this morning. I cued on the words because I knew what was coming. We are free in him and we can know forgiveness in him. If you're not a believer here today, you don't know Jesus here today, I ask you, I beg you, put your faith and trust in him. Turn from living your own way of life. Look to him. Put your faith and trust in him. Seek forgiveness for your sin. He will grant it. He will put your feet on a rock. He will clothe you in his righteousness. He will give you a hope and a purpose in this life. What about those three areas we looked at? First one, the area of abortion. If you know that that's something that you are guilty of, that you've been through, I say come to Jesus. (laughs) Come to Jesus and get forgiveness. Get cleansing, get healing, get some people here to pray for you. Just come to him. Do not walk around carrying that alone. What about the area of suicide? If you know you are here and that is something that you are battling with, Please, for the love of God, tell someone. Tell someone today before you leave this room. If you are married, tell your spouse. If you are not, grab someone and tell them. When you tell them, it breaks the power and we can start moving forward. We can point you to get professional help. There are charities, groups set up whose sole purpose is to help you. And find hope and healing. We can pray for you. We can stand by you. We can do it. But do not suffer alone. Do not suffer in silence. You'll be surprised at how many people in the room who have had difficult times, have had nasty thoughts, have had thoughts about harming themselves. We can help you. We can point you to people, the right people, and we can stand by you and pray with you. What about the area of assisted suicide, euthanasia? As a people, we are to speak out. As much as we can in the positions we can, we are to think very carefully about decisions we make when it comes to members of our family who are either suffering or elderly and and kind of, you know, what do we do with this? How do we work this out? And this is really only a starting point, but we need to be people who think carefully and there are many resources we can look at to help us. We need to think about the advice we give to others, what it means, and the fact that we're trying to build a kingdom culture and we're trying to build something where we preserve life And Jesus is Lord over it all. What about all of us who are murderers of the heart? 
What do we do for the times we've committed murder over and over again? Even this week, just reflecting back seven days, I bet we're all guilty in some form or another of the way we thought or talked about others. What do we do? Well, the first thing we need to do is to forgive that individual, forgive that person for whatever they've done. Whether it's a home issue, whether it's a work issue, for many of us it'll be a work issue, spend a lot of time at work, bosses and colleagues and all that do, or it could even be a church issue. People in church, you know, you need to forgive. What do we do? We need to acknowledge it. We need to acknowledge that we've been hurt, that we've been wounded, that what was said to us damaged us in some way. We need to not condone their actions. We're not saying that. You don't condone when evil things are done. You have to just call it what it is. And particularly if it is an illegal action, we need to call the authorities and the police in and get them involved. But most of the time it's not. It's just things said between people. We need to recognize our hurt and we need to bring it to God. And we need to pray, God, I forgive that person for what they did. Name what they did. Telling God, this is how it made me feel. And I now release them to you. I choose to forgive them to you because I have been forgiven much. Recognizing God's forgiveness in each of our lives. If people have hurt us and we're still in relationship with them, we need to confront them. We need to talk to them. Jesus said, if you've got a problem, you go talk to that person. Try and work it out. Try and get it right. I've been amazed, observation and through personal experience, when you actually go and talk to someone and you have a face-to-face conversation, you're honest, it's amazing what gets solved and what actually sort of pales down in terms of its significance. It doesn't become insignificant, but it can become less. Because often in our mind when we stew, it becomes big and great, overwhelming. But actually you talk to someone, have that conversation, it's amazing what you can deal with. We need to seek to reconcile as much as it depends on us with that individual who may have hurt us, who may have done those things. Seek to be in a good place. We need to speak well of them and of others in general. I am stunned again and again at the power of words. We can destroy people with our words. We can cut them to the quick. We can make them feel insignificantly small just by what we say to them. But the flip is also true. We can build them up and we can encourage them. We can cause them to flourish. And one of the things we do is we can speak well of people as a general thing, but also speak well of those we know who we have issues with. It's hard to think bad things about them when we are speaking well of them. And so that's always a good line of attack to go down. Seek to speak well of your workplace. Speak well of your bosses. Speak well of your colleagues. Speak well of the company. Speak well of your home and your marriage and your raising of parents, raising of kids. Speak well of your friends. Speak well of the church you're a part of. Speak well of the people in that and all they do to serve and help you. And finally, we can pray for them. You know that you've forgiven someone and you've worked through something when you can pray for them. And you can, when I say pray for them, you can pray good things for them. Because you can pray, Lord, judge them. Bring your fire upon them. I've, you've, I've never prayed that. I imagine you have, though, but I, I've never. But you know what I mean? You can pray negative stuff, but you can also pray positive stuff. When you can pray for someone, God bless them. God, God add to what they're doing. Particularly if they're not a Christian, God save them. Bring them into a relationship with you. Forgive them for their sins. Bring them into your family. Give them a hope and a purpose in everything you're doing. You know you've reached a point where you are, in, you are feeling good towards them and murder in your heart is less likely. 
even unlikely. And so God says to us, you shall not murder. And there are practical outward applications, big things that need to be wrestled with the church and we're going to be facing for decades to come. But there's also the murder of our heart that we're all guilty of and we all do day in, day out, week in, week out that we need to be aware of. We're all serial killers in that. But the good news is Jesus forgives us. He saved us. He set our feet on a rock. He comes into our lives and turns it around so that we can know him. And that is wonderful news. So I'm just going to pray. So do you want to stand? And we're going to finish. Can the band come up? And then we're going to worship Jesus. Do you want to close your eyes? I just want to lead us through some of those things for all of us that we can just begin to process. You may want to close your eyes, open your hands. Holy Spirit of God, we want to thank you that you are here, that you are with us. We thank you, God, that you know everything that's gone on in our heart today and this week, and yet you still love us. <laughs> thank you for that, Lord God. We thank you that your love for us is unending, is all-consuming. I want to talk to some of you who've been involved in some of these things first and foremost. If you've been involved in abortion, you know that's something in your life. I want to tell you today, God loves you. God is for you. God has a plan and purpose of your life. He wants to bring good into your life. He wants to forgive you as well and set your feet on a rock. And if you know that's you, God, I'd say come to God now. Just speak to him. Accept what he's doing in your life. If you want to talk to someone at the end, we'd love to get some people to come and pray with you, talk to you, and just love on you as much as we can. If some of you know that you're having dark, unhelpful thoughts, suicidal thoughts, God loves you and God knows about it. God is for you. God doesn't want you where you are. God wants to lead you out of the darkness. The light is way more powerful than the darkness. And I beg you now, tell someone grab someone do not let it go we will walk with you we will stand with you we will do whatever it can we will point you in the right direction we will pray for you do not end your life because God has so much for you he wants to show you do not let that be do not add to those statistics and the whole area of the assisted suicide God we pray for our nation that it would not become legal here that we could preserve life as much as we can, Lord God. We pray as a church, as your people, to give us wisdom to know how to deal with this in our own families because it's going to come up at some point for us. And we ask you to give us grace and wisdom, eternal wisdom that we know how to process. And Lord God, I bring all of us now before you as murderers of the heart who've had negative, violent, evil thoughts towards people where we've wanted to make them small because we're angry, we're in pain. Lord God, and I pray, God, forgive us for our sin. And Lord, let us be people who seek to preserve life in every possible way, where we are people who speak well of others in every context, particularly when it's hard. Let our words be light in the darkness in places where we walk in our family situations, in our work situations, even in our church life that we would seek to build up and seek the best. Lord, give us grace to forgive others when we have been forgiven so very much. 
in you, Lord Jesus. Help us to seek reconciliation as much as it depends on us and give us wisdom how to do that because sometimes that's just not straightforward, Lord. We need your help. Show us the power of words to build up and cause flourishing those around us, Lord. And Lord, we ask you to give us a heart for prayer that we would willingly, humbly pray for those around us, those, particularly those who've wounded and hurt us. They might have done it intentionally. They might have done it unintentionally, Lord, and they just don't even, they're not even aware. God, give us grace in those times, Lord Jesus. And just as you are the Lord, the giver of life, Lord, we pray, Holy Spirit of God, that you would make us a people who seek to preserve life, who seek to preserve life. For your glory, Lord. And God's people said...